Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Forward Pass podcast. My name's Graham Jenkins and I'll be chatting to some of the most talented, respected and experienced members of the rugby media about their careers. Hopefully you'll enjoy the insight they offer and also learn a great deal as we also discuss how they do their job, whether it's in the press box, behind a microphone, in front of a TV camera or behind a lens. We're kicking things off with commentator Nick Mullins and in the coming weeks we'll also be hearing from the likes of the Sunday Times Stephen Jones, Getty Images Dave Rogers and BBC Five Live's Ian Robertson. So joining me is Nick Mullins, whose voice will be familiar to many through his work on TV and radio, primarily, but by no means exclusively, on Rugby Union for various outlets, including BT Sport, ITV and the BBC. Hi, Nick, and thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure, Grant. Pleasure. So we're going to take you, take you back to where it all began, Nick. So in terms of your journalistic career, where, where did it start? Um, it started in the mind of a, a 13, 14-year-old boy who was wondering what to do with his life, and he gave about six months' thought to becoming a technical drawer because he could draw straight lines. Um, and then he thought, actually, I quite like English. I like reading. I like writing. And he saw a picture of Fleet Street in the 1960s with St. Paul's at the top end and uh, red double-decker Routemaster buses and uh, as a young kid growing up in Leicestershire, that seemed very glamorous to me. So uh, a job writing on Fleet Street was, was what kind of guided me towards journalism. And I still think of what I do as journalism. It's just, it's just one form of journalism. So I knew, I knew from a really early age, Graham, that, that journalism was what I wanted to do. And, and that first break, where did the first break come in? Um, I, I, I suspect and I hope that this still remains the same, that the first break comes pretty much from, from the work that you put into it. And even as a 13, 14-year-old, I was thinking, where can I get experience that, that might give me a little bit of an edge? So my first job uh, during summer holidays was on the Loughborough and Colville Trader, uh, which was a, a wonderful free sheet that came out weekly in the East Midlands. Um, and I wrote a, a couple of stories for them during the summer. Uh, the following summer graduated to the Loughborough Echo, which was very posh. It was the paper that people um, had to pay for in Loughborough and, and still do. And so I, I've always thought that you get as much experience as you can early on by offering to work for free, to make the teas, to to um, shuttle paper around. So I was, this would have been, this would have been the mid-80s, um, 83, 84, um, on, on those old newspapers that still have the traditional print runs. And I just learned so much um, by giving up my own time, but, but working alongside those who were doing the job full-time in the local newspaper industry. And I guess that was my first break. So. And, and, was, and was that sport-specific to start with, or did no, you start no, in general news? Um, these local newspapers, uh, as we all know, cover, cover everything. What it, what it did do, though, was, particularly on a paper like the Loughborough Echo, um, which carried lots of wedding reports, and as, as the young buck in the office, you got lots of wedding reports to write up on the Monday. <laughs> um, but it instilled one discipline that stays with me even now, and that's the importance of accuracy when it comes to names because if you're drawing up a wedding report and you get the name of the bride's father's uncle wrong you can guarantee that the editor the following day will be getting a phone call from the bride's uncle's father or whoever it is so yeah. i still you know i still remember those days of of, of of the terror of thinking that i might have got the names wrong in a, in a wedding photo um so really really good experience that that, that follows you through life and I understand it was uh, what you made the move into radio. At what point did that happen for you? I did a degree in media studies um, at a time when media studies wasn't uh, a particularly popular degree to do. Um, I know now there's a proliferation of them, and I've, 
I kind of have mixed views on a media studies degree. If there was, if there was ever anything in my life that I, that I might change, given the option of doing a more general degree in, uh, for example, English at the University of East Anglia, the older I get, the more I think, actually, if I hadn't been so driven towards a career in journalism, I might have, I might have taken a more general degree. But from my point of view, media studies was great because it, interest, it, it, it interested me in terms of what I wanted to do as a career. And it also introduced me to an area of journalism that I'd never thought of before, which was radio. Um, and having always imagined that I'd be a print newspaper journalist, hopefully on a big national one day, I suddenly came across this medium called radio. Um, and in terms of sport, in terms of any kind of news, really, it was that much more immediate. So midway through my degree in media studies at, at um, Central London Poly, Polytechnic of Central London, which is now the University of Westminster, very grandly, um, I, I came across radio and uh, headed down that path, and it's kind of led long-term to where I am now. Mm -hmm. And is uh, your relationship with the BBC, did that begin shortly after graduation? It did. It, it actually began before graduation because at the time, um, uh, I'd have been 21, I still wasn't entirely sure whether I wanted to specialize in sport or be a more general news journalist on the radio. I knew I wanted to do radio now because I'd worked at Radio Leicester, um, which was my home BBC local radio station, for a couple of years again in the summer holidays during my degree. So I understood the thrill of telling people listening at home that Leicester had scored at Bournemouth in the first division and they were hearing that news immediately. I always, I always got a buzz out of being the one who delivered that news as opposed to the one who wrote it that you read about um, 48 hours later on the on the Monday afternoon edition of the Leicester Mercury. Um, so I'd, so I'd, always, I'd always had a sense that, that radio was what I wanted to do just because of the immediacy of that. And the BBC back then, I think they might, they might still be running this scheme. There was a, a scheme called the Local Radio Reporter Scheme, um, and they'd taken a dozen people each year um, who show some kind of aptitude for for the job. And they eventually, uh, eventually give you a job in local radio via an apprenticeship that, that would involve going around to a couple of local radio stations over the course of the 12 months. Um, duration, uh, and then hopefully moving into news in, in local radio. So I applied for that uh, and was, uh, was, was offered a place on, on that course post-graduation. So actually, my link with the BBC began before I'd actually graduated through, again, offering myself via, via work experience and working every, every Saturday afternoon at Radio Leicester. Uh, and then applying for the for the, uh, for the local radio trainees. Mm -hmm. Was it, was there anyone in particular who took you under their wing at the BBC, sort of thing? Is it? There was, yeah. Um, um, my producer at Radio Leicester, and again, this is all voluntary. I didn't I didn't get paid on on Saturdays, and in fact, I came up. Um, obviously, I was doing my degree in London, so it involved coming back home every weekend to Leicester, um, going into Radio Leicester at half past eight on a Saturday morning and the first thing I had to do was record a program called Sport on Four which those as old as me and you Graham will remember and those younger won't but Sport on Four was this fantastic sports program that went out on Radio 4 on a Saturday morning uh, and every local radio station around the country would record it was a half hour program and the best bits of that the best interviews with the sportsmen that Cliff Morgan had in in, uh, interviews that week would then be dropped in uh, over the course of an afternoon on the local radio station. And my first job was to record that. So I'd be in at half past eight, sitting in a little booth recording a program that one day I'd end up producing. And that was that was a real thrill. But that was a few years 
further down the line. Uh, but my producer at, at Radio Leicester was uh, a chap called John Rawling, who mm-hmm. went on to work for the BBC um, and is now a, a fantastic boxing commentator. And John was the one who not only encouraged me to do what I was doing and give me advice on on the moves I was making. He was the one really who who made sure that I became a sports reporter rather than a news reporter because at around the time that I'd been offered the place on the, the news trainee scheme, um, a six-month maternity cover attachment came up at Radio Kent and there was no clearly no guarantee at the end of the six months that there'd be a job at the end of it and it was part-time so less money but it was in sport um and the big decision was according to john whether i wanted to have a career sitting in a courtroom or a career sitting watching county cricket and he said you got to choose how you want to spend your day and actually in hindsight that's you know one of the most significant bits of advice i've ever been given because if you'd rather the county court then you head into news journalism if you quite about the idea of earning a living watching cricket or whatever, then you head, you head into sports. I'm always grateful to, to, to John Rawling for that for that earliest bit of advice. And I was going to say, I was going to ask you a little later on about in terms of how much uh, luck or events played a part in, in shaping your career. I guess that pregnancy as well, obviously, was key in, in, key in shaping your path. Yeah, well, I think it's the same with, with whatever we do, you know, however we reflect on what we're doing now. There are, there are little blind corners that come up that you can't anticipate. You can, you can give yourself as, as much of a chance as, as possible of making the most of those chances when they occur, but you have no idea when they're going to come up. I'd, I'd spent two years working unpaid at Radio Leicester every weekend, eventually commentating on Leicester City, um, not rugby, interestingly, but Leicester City towards towards the end of that two-year period. So when the job came up to act um, as, a, as a sports reporter at Radio Kent for six months, it wasn't something that phased that me. I wasn't terrified by that prospect. It was something that I knew I could do because I'd been doing it for free on Radio Leicester for a, for a couple of years. So, uh, you know, clearly, clearly opportunities, as they will for all of us in our careers, occur, but I think what you can do um, is to make sure that when those opportunities occur, you're as, you're as best qualified as you possibly can be to, to make the most of them. You, you clearly developed that within the, the BBC framework to the point where uh, you, you, you took the step into television. So you, as, a, as a professional, you were clearly making your mark and people were respecting what you were doing. I think the, the best thing about the BBC, and there are a million brilliant things about the BBC, and I still love the BBC, uh, and, and will forever be grateful for the opportunities that it gave me but but the best thing about the BBC and I think lots of people who who work for it have worked for it will say is that because it's so big um, you get that many more avenues of opportunity within the same organization Mm -hmm. if you look at my career path through the BBC that began as a well as a 17 year old doing it for nothing on Radio Leicester um, and, and ended up with me working full time at Radio Kent in my early 20s. I spent four years at Radio Kent. Um, you can you learn on the job, and, the, and it's 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 an apprenticeship that for some people who are lucky enough um, to work there for the whole of their lives can last for the whole of your working career. Um, I had four years in local radio at Radio Kent. Um, and then at around the time that, that Radio 5 was launching in the early 90s, they needed producers. So it was an easy link from a BBC local radio station to the BBC national station, which was Radio 5. And a whole slew of us came through at that point. Pretty much anybody who is who is doing what I'm doing now, 
on national radio or TV came via that that generation of, of Radio 5 producers and commentators. Um, and then because I was at Radio 5, um, kind of drawing the timeline um, to a conclusion, when Bill McLaren was thinking of retiring, they, they had a bunch of journalists that, 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 that were there as, as, as options for them. I think what was happening within the BBC at that point as well was, was significant to all of us who were, who were doing what we're doing now. People like Miles on Sky, Miles Harrison, John Champion, Peter Drury, Mark Pugach. I mean, there are, there are literally dozens of us who were coming through Radio 5 at that point. Uh, and I, I don't think um, it's happened by chance. And it, it happened because of a change of view within the BBC and perhaps within the view of BBC television hierarchy. Because certainly in the 60s and 70s, you either work for BBC Radio or you work for BBC television. Um, and it wasn't quite a sackable offence to, to cross the border. But, but there were big border walls between the office of the radio people and the folk who were working on TV. You oh, really? okay. go from one to the other very easily, deadline, and made, made that transition. But you were dealing uh, in television terms in a period of very strong, popular, well-established commentators. And we don't need to run down the list, but we know who those television commentators were who'd been around for our lifetimes. And what was starting to happen was that those, those commentators, Harry Carpenter's, John Moxon's to a certain extent, Bill McLaren, they were all starting to get to the point where they might have wanted to do other things with their lives. And the BBC were finding more and more that those established commentators needed replacing. Um, and the obvious place to look for those replacements was, was possibly Radio 5 because it, was, it had been well received and it was the perfect training ground for, for young commentators like us. Um, and the management was changing. Television management were much more disposed towards employing radio people. Um, so again, you know, one of those situations that, that, that you know, um, alignment of the stars meant that people like me could suddenly move into television that much more easily than it would have been possible 10 years previous. Mm -hmm. Now, I remember speaking to you at a time when, when uh, you joined the ESPN team. Was that a sort of a, a difficult decision to step away from a, from a large role within the BBC into, into that sphere? It was it was a it was a big decision, but but not an enormous decision. Um, simply because, um, and again, this isn't meant to be a criticism of the BBC, but it was it was at around the time that the BBC was beginning to lose more and more sports contracts, um, and we'd lost the Heineken Cup on television. Um, ITV appeared to have the World Cup signed up. So we were reaching the point, I was reaching the point as a television commentator on the BBC, that pretty much the only thing we had was, was the Six Nations. Uh, and increasingly, I wasn't overly busy, to be absolutely frank, because we were, we were losing more and more contracts on the BBC. And I'd also got to the stage where I quite liked the idea of concentrating on one sport. Up until that point, I'd been a, a bit of an all-rounder, still doing a bit of radio, still doing a bit of TV, covering lots of sports, tennis, London Marathon, boat race. Um, so having a wonderful time covering brilliant sports. But there was an opportunity with ESPN uh, who, who, who thought that they might rival Sky domestically uh, in rugby terms to go along and really concentrate on one sport seven days a week. So I, I just like that idea, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's bring, bring things up to date in terms of um, your working week. I wonder if you could sort of detail how, how, how you work 
between match day to match day in terms of your, your club visits or your preparation time? Just to offer some insight into that. Well, we, we probably do a couple of matches a weekend, um, me and Alistair Eakin, who's, who's the other commentator on, on BT. Um, so I have two matches to prepare for on, on either the Friday, the Saturday or the Sunday. My, my, my week's actually quite structured. I always try and give myself Monday off. Um, and Monday away from rugby as well. I mean, I love rugby, but you have to have a day off where you um, you have a non-rugby day. So, so quite strict on uh, Mondays being a non-rugby day. Uh, and then the first part of the week is Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, going to clubs. Going to clubs is such an important part of what we do um, in terms of picking up gossip, talking about what they're trying to do as a team. Um, you know, that, that's where you get the detail on the lineouts and the scrums and all manner of things that you can bring into the TV commentary. Uh, a little bit of watching their previous fixtures. So if I'm doing a bath game, I'll watch um, a couple of their of their latest games to make sure that I'm bang up to speed with with what they've been up to. And you've got to multiply that by four because obviously you're doing four four teams over a weekend. Um, so the first part of the week is the gathering of the information, making sure that you've seen the team play most recently at least a couple of times, and then trying to get to. Um, uh, probably a couple of training sessions a week there's obviously a limit on time but um, if you're going to a couple of week um, every week then you're you're seeing most teams every every four, five, six weeks which is probably as much as you need um, and then Thursday and Friday is the day that, that you, you bring it all together and you compile it in, into a commentary sheet so you're ready to go from, from Friday evening I was going to say you're, you're um, understandably quite proud of your of your, your crib sheets for, for those followers on, <laughs> on Twitter. You, I'm proud of them. They're, they're, I mean, they're, they're essential to me. One of um, one of the joys of working at the BBC was that uh, you know, from from a youngster going into Radio Five in my mid twenties, you were suddenly working alongside um, people that you 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 know looked up to from a, from a, a young age. So for me, it was Christopher Martin Jenkins and Peter Jones and. Brian Butler and Ian Robertson doing rugby, and one of one of the great thrills when I made the transition from radio to television in the in the late nineties was obviously to work alongside Bill McLaren. Um, <clears throat> and we all we all know about Bill's sheets, and my sheets are exactly the same as him um, in in two um, two two major differences. One, mine's half the size. Uh, and two, it doesn't contain anywhere near the amount of fabulous information that, that bills do. But the whole point was that you could have everything that you would possibly need to talk about on that match um, on a piece of paper that you could hold in one hand. So I'd have the sheet in one hand, my left hand, um, and the the microphone, those those lit microphones that, that commentators are, uh, are associated with in the other. Um, and that's that's my week's work. My week's work is is filling in one more often than not two of those commentary sheets, so that when I go up to the commentary box at the weekend, I don't need to be fiddling around for any other bit of paper, or fiddling through the program, or going on my iPad for for other bits of information. Anything that I could possibly need is is written on that on that piece of card. Two bits of A4 paper. Um, uh, and then paper clip to each other on a bit of card, and that's that's how it works. Mm-hmm. In, in my experience, I, I've found rugby rugby union tends to be quite open in terms of access to to coaches and players um, to a certain degree. Is that something you found, and has that changed over the years of you covering the sport? 
No, it hasn't. I, but I think this, this links back to, to journalism and, and having contacts and, and having people that you can ring up and say, listen, I need a bit of help here. Um, so I could ring a premiership rugby coach and say, I'd like to come along on Tuesday and watch you train. And, and they, will, they will trust you to, to come in and watch that session without spilling the beans about a particular line-out play or a back smooth that they've been practicing in training that week um, to, to whoever they're, they're, they're playing the following weekend. Um, so, so I find with, with club rugby, uh, the access is, is as it's always been. There's an understanding that, that they are doing you a favor by letting you in. But on the other hand, they understand the importance of, of, of television to what they're trying to do and to take the game to a wider audience. And if I have some some sense of what they're trying to do, I can perhaps try and explain that to those who are um, struggling to understand it at the weekend. Uh, international rugby, completely different. Um, and they're, they're so suspicious now of anybody who isn't directly connected to the squad watching anything. Um, it's not to say that you don't get into training sessions, but it, it, it depends entirely on your relationship with those at the top um, and just the, the, the general approach that, that a team will have. You won't get into watch an all-black training session from start to finish, for example, no matter how well you know Steve Hampton because it's just their policy. But um, with Wales during the World Cup, um, providing that you, you, you get the warning that you'd like to watch it, then, then Alan Phillips, the team manager, is more than happy for you to, to stay and watch the session. But again, that's, that's built on a relationship that I've had with Alan for 20-odd years. Um, so internationally, it's getting much, much harder. And we work within 15-minute blocks at the start of the, of the session, which is more often than not a warm-up. Um, so to a certain degree, from, from my point of view, um, it's, it's just a recognition opportunity. You're not going to see any moves. Um, but actually, from the commentator's point of view, if you're doing uh, Fiji against Tonga in a, in a World Cup, um, my main concern in a situation like that is to be able to rec- recognize the players on match day. So it's, um, it's a reconnaissance thing as opposed to trying to pick up anything uh, too rich tactically. I don't think perhaps scripting is the right word, but in terms of how, much, how do you prepare for key moments, whether it's the All Blacks are going to win the World Cup, in terms of what you're going to say at a moment that may get played a million times over the next few years? My approach will be different to other people's. Um, and uh, there, are, there are two extremes, I think. And, and I always think of, of Barry Davis and John Motson in, in, in this sense, because I've, I've certainly talk, talked a lot to Barry Davis about the way he, he does this. Um, and there will be those who, who like to cover every eventuality and perhaps have one or two things written down. And I know lots of radio commentators, um, present day and past day, who, who will have written down little, little lines that they think might fit a situation. Um, I, I prefer not to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm much more of the, of the Barry Davis approach to life, which is watch the picture, see how it develops, uh, and then try and find the right phrase or terminology to, to match that picture or hopefully enhance the picture if you can. Um, what that isn't saying is that you head into a World Cup final without, without visualizing what might happen. It's a, a little bit like a player to a certain degree. You know, you imagine um, what you might say the moment Rich McCall, McCall lifts the World Cup, for example. If you've not thought about that as a commentator, you're not doing your job. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to write it down. But you've got to think of something that will, that will highlight that shot that we're seeing. Um, and I think you take a risk 
sometimes if you if you go into a commentary without giving it some kind of thought beforehand. Mm-hmm. Like, can, we, can we return to to the subject of Twitter? Like I say, it's something as a tool that you use. I'm just um, interested in your thoughts in general about that social social media element. Yeah, I I love it, um, and I think. You, you have to be aware that, that if you're going to open yourself up on Twitter, the bad side, we all understand the bad side of Twitter. You know, there'll be, there'll be folk on Twitter who, who don't like you, and you're, you're, you're going to come across that. So I think if you're going to use Twitter, you've got to have a thick enough skin or a, or a good enough sense of humor to understand that not everybody will love you as much as your mum does. Um, and you learn, you learn to develop that. Uh, that thick skin fairly early on as a, as a commentator. But I, I just love the access that Twitter gives us all to the players. It, it certainly helps in terms of my preparation during the week to see what they've been, what they've been up to, particularly if they've gone away, if they're on a, on a break with the team, if they've gone to New York or whatever Saracens might be getting up to sometimes. It gives you direct access to what the players thinking. I use it as a, uh, you know, I follow all the major national newspapers and all the major national journalists. So as a news resource, it's wonderful. You know, you're getting breaking stories on Twitter all the time. Um, and actually, just as importantly for me, um, and it might not apply to everybody, but for me, it provides an open link to those who have to listen to me week in, week out. And I'm, I'm often going on and you know, asking for feedback, not necessarily on, on me as a commentator, although I'm very happy to get that from people, but more on what we're doing as as a company like BT Sport or, or ITV. And I go up, go on Twitter ahead of ITV's first Six Nations and say, what do you want to see? You know, what, what do you like from, from the broadcasters on television? What don't you like? You know, how would you like us to approach this? Um, and it's not a guarantee that what everybody says will become policy at ITV, but I just like the idea that we all have access to each other, and if you have a, you know, if you have a view on on what you would like a television commentator to sound like, or you would like ITV's coverage to look like, uh, you know, I find that that line of communication um, a useful one. Is is that sort of engagement and interaction encouraged by producers these days, or is it something you you want to dip into yourself? Um, more, more and more so. I mean, I think particularly on BT, um, it wasn't part of the contract, and I only I only joined Twitter when I when I joined BT, but um, everybody at BT was on Twitter, so I think I think a company like BT would very much encourage you to have a Twitter account, so you can, uh, you know, let's not beat around the bush, so we can plug what we're doing a lot of the time. You know, much of my timeline is spent saying, hey, we're doing Leicester Bath at Welford Road on Saturday, um, half past two kickoff, hope you can be there. You know, it's, it's an advertising tool as it, is for, as it is for lots of people, but I don't want my timeline just to become a plug for BT Sport. You know, I want to know what 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 my followers are thinking uh, of, of, of what we're up to. And I think I think more and more broadcasters are realising that it it does provide it does provide instant feedback. Uh, I mean, it has it, it has its pitfalls, and um, you know, you can you can be misrepresented on Twitter, and you know, you you, you have a choice to make. You can either do, either fight your corner. Or just just let it ride, working on the assumption and the understanding that this is what happened. So I'm not saying that that everything that happened in the world of Twitter is is, is perfect and positive. Clearly it isn't, and you know we've all we've all had a run-ins with it. But generally speaking, I'm you know I'm I'm, I'm happy that I'm on it, um, and I hope that those who who engage with me on it feel that they get something from it as well. I was going to say 
looking back at the World Cup, I must, it must have been frustrating in terms of the people who weren't aware of the comments that Fiji coach John McKee had made and, and the sort of reference you'd made in commentary and the, the, the media storm that followed that. That sort of thing must want you to duck out of Twitter, I guess. Yeah, to a, to, to a degree. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that, that, I, that I handled that as well as I might have done in, in hindsight. Um, for, those, for those who don't know the story, we, we went to a press conference the day before England against Fiji, the opening match, and John McKee um, was asked to paint a picture of what it would be like back in Fiji um, watching the match on the Saturday morning as it, as it would have been Fiji time. And he said, well, they'll, they'll all be crowded around TV sets in the big cities and on some of the more uh, remote and more outlying islands where, where uh, they don't have so many TV sets, there will be folk gathering around TV sets, you know, lugging aerials up hills to get reception, you know, hoping that, that the electricity works for them, which I, in my mind, um, thought was, a, was a, a fairly strong picture of what some folk in Fiji would be doing to, to get to watch the match. Um, and the way it was reported on Twitter gave the impression that that's how everybody in Fiji would be watching the match, which clearly wasn't the case. Um, not helped by the fact that one of Fiji's players uh, responded to it in fairly forthright terms. And I can understand um, responding in the way he did because of the way it had been reported on Twitter. But that's, that's frustrating. Um, you know, you're, you're being misrepresented and that's not what you said in commentary. Um, and uh, you just have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. It was a very difficult time because, you know, the last thing I wanted to do was to cause disrespect to, to you know, Fiji as a nation, most importantly, and it's not what I'd said, and I was simply quoting what John McKee, the coach, had said 24 hours earlier, but because somebody had gone on Twitter and said, hang on a minute, uh, Nick seems to think that an entire nation will be uh, watching on television like this, it, it clearly spun in a direction that, um, that wasn't entirely comfortable. In contrast of other people's opinions, how, how do you assess your own sort of performance? Do you ever watch games back in terms of and listen to what you said? Or yeah, all it, the time, yeah. all the time. I mean, you, 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 I don't watch every game back because I'd have no time to prepare for the next one. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about what I do on the drive home, thinking about... I, you know, I, I think the thing that you have to realise is that you'll never give the perfect commentary the perfect I, I used to spend years and years in the early days fretting about giving the perfect commentary that doesn't exist you'll never do the perfect commentary because over the course of 80 minutes in whatever context we are in whether you're in a conversation with a mate down the pub or commentating on a world cup final you cannot talk cogently for 80 minutes um <clears throat> and in hindsight use every single word perfectly at the perfect moment but as long as you identified um, most of the players correctly you don't misidentify the try scorer you don't get the scores wrong you don't swear you don't upset too many people then you, you have to view that as a as a fairly reasonable commentary but but you never you'll never you'll never be perfect and uh, it's uh, <laughs> it's a pointless waste of, waste of life ever trying to be but no I'm, I'm, I'm my biggest well I hope to think that I'm my biggest critic um, and I'm very rarely satisfied with what I do um, and after all the work leading up to a commentary, the end of it is always a bit of a downer for me. I'm never, I'm never great socially on a Saturday night after a match, no matter how well I think it might have gone, because you put a lot of effort and energy and concentration into it. And um, often at the end of commentaries, you're, you're, you're completely drained. Mm -hmm. 
And I said, well, it's not something you have to shoulder yourself. You know, in, I know in BT, obviously, you, you share the booth as such with um, uh, several larger-than-life characters in the likes of Austin Healy and, and Ben Kay. How, how does that dynamic work with you, with you guys? It's, how was that originally put together? Did you know those guys as part of that team before you worked together with each other at ESPN? No, I didn't know. I knew, I knew Austin because me and Austin had worked together um, on the BBC during the Autumn International coverage and during Six Nations coverage as well. So, so Austin and I um, were, were uh, friends. We had a relationship. But I'd never met Ben before he was employed by uh, ESPN. I don't think I'm, I'm giving away too many, too many state secrets to say that he had a, a decision to make because he was um, leaving Leicester and had been, uh, I think it was Salon who'd offered him a contract and Austin said, well, actually, uh, BT are looking for uh, a co-commentator with me. How do you fancy giving it a go? And Ben went along and um, did a, a couple of dummy commentaries and was brilliant as, as he is now. So we, we, had to, we had to build up that relationship. But it, it happened very quickly because um, I, think, I think what Ben and Austin realized from a really early stage was that being brilliant at your sport – uh, was one thing, and that certainly helped in terms of the commentary, but the most important part of what they were moving into was the ability to be um, an outstanding communicator, and both of them are outstanding communicators. You, you can't be an outstanding broadcaster without being the communicator as well. Um, and I, th- I think that's what they do. They have a sense of, of what's interesting to normal people like me and you. They've got clearly you know, an ability beyond... <clears throat> anything that we could dream of but there's a real art to be able to be able to put that ability in, into words that we understand and to, to explain help explain what we're what we're seeing on tv um was it was the the, the the presence of have two so-called analysts alongside you was that uh, a new idea for espn or is that something you sampled before no it was completely new um I, 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 I'm, not enti- I'm not entirely sure that ESPN got the credit they deserve for that, to be absolutely honest. And, and it was only when we started to think about it that it seemed blindingly obvious. Why would, in a, particularly in a sport like rugby union, would you not have somebody representing the backs and somebody representing the forwards? Because up until that point, um, certainly on the BBC, I'd been working with um, people who were one or the other. Mm-hmm. So it meant, for example, um, that... Brian Moore, who was a brilliant TV analyst, was having to <clears throat> analyse what the bats were doing, which he's perfectly capable of doing, but he's played uh, as an international back as much as I have. Uh, and Jonathan Davis was having to work out what the tight head prop was doing <laughs> or what the second row was doing, which, you know, while, while again, he's, he's you know, qualified to a degree to do that, he'd not played it. Um, and I just found that so refreshing that we were dealing with people with Austin and Ben who weren't speculating anymore about what was happening in the pack um, because you know we, we, we had two people who could cover both sides of the coin um, and I think more and more are starting to do that we certainly did that during the World Cup with ITV um, we did it with ITV during the Six Nations um, and, I, and I hope that people feel that, that, it's, that it's the way forward I was going to, the, way, the way you explain the dynamics there it it sounds like it, it's obvious when each person needs to speak, so it's not like you're tripping over each other. No. Um, just to put you in the picture, 
if you imagine the three of us sitting in the or standing, we never sit down. We always stand up when we're commentating because it's much much easier to be more dynamic standing up than sitting down. Um, we use those uh, lip mics, as they're called, the the things that you hold underneath your nose. Um, and the way we judge it in its most basic terms is that they're like pendulums. So when somebody has the lip mic to their mouth, the other two don't. And you know, therefore, that there are little cues that when the other person wants to talk, they just move the lip mic up and he starts to talk when you move your lip mic down. I hope I've explained that. Well. No, that makes sense. perfect sense. Um, but there's also, a, you know, eye contact is, is, is total because the thing that we don't want to do is to be talking over each other. That was always the big challenge for a three-man commentary team, not to be talking over each other. So eye contact is, is pretty much constant, as is, as is body contact thumping, kicking, whatever you need to do to get the other bloke's attention, um, you're doing all the time. So if, you, if you're the two people on the, on the two extremes, I, I very often stand, and stand in the middle of Ben and Austin uh, and they will work around me. But one will be leaning in front of me looking at Austin and there's lots of pointing. So it's, it's, a, it's a really dynamic thing to, to make sure that A, we're not talking over each other, but also be just as importantly, and this is becoming more and more important now we're hearing more of the referee, we're not talking over the referee either. Mm -hmm. um, because I would think there are four, five, six people involved in the television conversation. There's the three of us, there's the referee, there's the players that you can sometimes hear, and you certainly want to hear that when it's being picked up and on the referee's microphone. And the sixth person involved in that conversation, who is equally important, um, is the crowd. Um, because uh, I, you know, one of the best bits of advice I ever had was from Bob Shannon, who was then head of radio sport um, in the mid-90s when I moved from production to broadcasting in the mid-90s as a radio commentator. He always said, unless what you're saying is better at the point that the try scored is better than the sound of 80,000 people celebrating. Let's hear the sound of 80,000 people celebrating. And then you come in when things are starting to calm down a bit. So I'm, all, I'm constantly aware of the soundtrack, the natural soundtrack provided outside the commentary box by the ref, by the players, and as importantly, by thousands and thousands of people watching a lot of noise, enjoying the sport on a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon. So, you know, there are, there are lots of things to bear in mind. You, 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 and, and you're constantly in the mind of the person at home watching it on the sofa or watching it in the pub and doing your absolute best to annoy them as little as possible. Mm -hmm. You guys always also seem to have a lot of fun with a lot of, there's a lot of humour interlaced with, with some great analysis. Again, is that something you try to cultivate or is that just something that's come from your relationship with those, those guys? No, I think it's, I think it's natural. Um, you, you, you can only be yourself broadcasting. Um, if you're not yourself, you won't last long. Um, or you won't get a great deal of satisfaction out of it because every time you go on air, you're trying to be somebody else. So you cannot be anybody else. So if people, uh, uh, as, they, as they occasionally do on Twitter, will come up and say, you know, I wish you, I wish you wouldn't laugh quite so much, or you know, I wish you'd um, stop, stop joking around with each other quite so much. Well, that's tough because that's what we do. And you know, if you were sitting next to the three of us in the dining bus beforehand. That's how we are. You know, we, we love what we're doing. We love the sport. Um, and, you know, as, I think as long as we're not disrespecting what the players are trying to do and not losing sight of 
the fact that the most important thing is what the players are trying to do, um, then then I think I think there's room for that. Particularly when you're doing it as much as we are on BT. If you're doing three or four games a weekend on BT, and it's just the ABC of commentary, if there's no personality coming through from the guys that are, that are involved, then I I think very quickly there's there's a danger that it could become dull. Mm-hmm. And it's but that's not to say, Graham, that we're we're aware that you can overdo it sometimes. And I'm I'm particularly on the on the on the big matches at the big moments. I'm aware of the need to rein it in, and I have you know I have various hand movements that the boys understand that I drop in when I think we need just to concentrate on the rugby a little bit. Because what you never want to do as a broadcaster is to, is to make the event about you. If if you start to fall into the trap of thinking you're as important as the thing you're commentating on, then you really are in a deep hole. Interesting. How um, important for you has been that your sort of still forays into tennis, obviously, or whether it's the Olympics, in terms of you professionally, how, how important has that been to you? I, I, I love sport, full stop. That's, that's where we all start from, I think. And I think, I hope that lots of us feel that way. Um, and I've always enjoyed the opportunity to experience other sports. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't like to do one sport at the, at the exclusion of all others. And, and just from a, from a professional point of view, um, maybe being a little bit dull about it, but I've just come back from a fortnight at Roland Garros. Um, I enjoy watching the way Andy Murray will construct his <clears throat> hour-long training session before going on to, to play Novak Djokovic in the French Open final. Uh, because what I learn from the way he prepares for a match instructs then what I do um, ahead of the first game of the rugby season on BT in, in, in September. I think, I think if you're interested in a subject, it helps to know how others do it beyond your immediate discipline. Uh, and I've always enjoyed talking to, to sports folk who don't just play rugby. So if it's, if it's the Olympics, it'll be judo and taekwondo, um, rowing. I've done a lot of clearly football in, the, in, in, in my early days with Radio 5 as well. But I just I think if you if you have an interest in sport, um, then it isn't necessarily about one sport. And and people do things differently. Clearly, Andy Murray prepares in a different way to the way that a, a rugby team of 15 or a squad of 23 will prepare. But you can always pick something up from it, and it it keeps you fresh. And it's a it's a change of environment. Um, and I know that I'll go back into the rugby season in September that much fresher mm-hmm. in, in terms of that freshness how do you how do you keep it fresh when you're doing two games a week for whatever 30 weeks 30 weeks of the year is it's um in terms of maintaining that enthusiasm for what you're doing and for and for the premiership so to speak um well i love it mm-hmm. and I, I, again i think that's important and it kind of goes back to the business of, of, of having to be yourself i'm not i'm not saying that on every occasion i'm waking up at five in the morning looking forward um, to, a, to, the, to the red eye to Toulon to watch, to watch the team train. But on the other hand, it doesn't take long for me to realise how lucky I am to be getting a flight to Toulon to watch a bunch of blokes run around on a Tuesday preparing for a Champions Cup match. So I'm not saying that, that uh, for, for every minute of, of every hour of the working day I'm filled with the joys of spring because you know, getting up at five in the morning isn't great for anybody, whatever, whatever you're doing. But I do, uh, there's a genuine enthusiasm for it. Um, you know, how can you not be enthusiastic about watching watching the event, and I've I've always thought actually if, if this makes it any easier to understand, um, I work up until kickoff, and actually at the point of kickoff, all my work is done because the, you know the the work 
is about the preparation and it's about getting that A4 commentary sheet with two teams on either side and names and bits of information and little news snippets ready. And once that's written out, which it, which it often is by the Friday evening and concluded a couple of hours before the match on the Saturday, once that's written out and the referee blows his whistle, that's when I can enjoy the match. Um, safe in the knowledge that hopefully I've got all the information I might need at any point during it. Um, but that's when you just sit back with everybody else and go, right, here's a, here's a game of rugby, and it's important. Um, so I, I think I think understanding that the, the match is something to be enjoyed, and and it's kind of away from the preparation that you've been doing in the week before helps you genuinely get enthusiastic for what you're watching during the 80 minutes. Mm-hmm. And just just to wrap things up, I'm just wondering, do you think sport or the rugby, or rugby union, sorry, in, in this country is in a healthy state? Is and what do you think you can do to sort of take the next step in terms of its development what, what do you see as the future I do think it's in a healthy state um, I always I always struggle with this I, I, simply because I I think with whatever whatever the sport you will reach saturation point um, and I think we can fret too much about trying to make it as popular as, as football because it, ne- because it never will be I don't think it ever will be as popular as football or, or cricket sometimes has those same issues. I think what we what we need to do as as people who love this particular sport is make it as accessible as possible without um, diluting what makes it so so special for us. So I, I think the fact that it's complicated is a good thing. The fact that we are sometimes saying why did the referee blow his whistle and having to give some thought to that. I think that's a, that's a good thing. So we need to be careful that that we don't make it magnolia bland. Uh, in an effort to sell it to people who don't necessarily want it sold to them, um, but just just enjoy it for what it is. Celebrate the skills of the players. Um, don't 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 get too down on them. I think one of the, one of the things that we try to do on BT is is to is to emphasise the positives. You know, it's it's too easy sometimes, particularly as a, as, as a commentator, to to get into a a negative uh, a negative mindset with kind of negatrons as we call them on BT. You just You've got to enjoy what people are trying to do. Players don't make mistakes because they want to make mistakes. You know, as long as you as long as you spend time with them during the week on wet Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon training sessions, seeing them practice what they're trying to achieve on a weekend, I think you're less likely to do that. Which is which is why going to those training sessions is is important to me because you know you're you're enjoying people at the very top of their trade doing something that only a tiny percentage of the world's population can do and we should we should we should celebrate that um without without trying to sell it to people who don't necessarily want it sold to okay i think that's a great place to leave it i appreciate your time and um keep up the good work it's a pleasure thank you thank you thanks Graham.